0: Wouldn't it be interesting, though, like Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, like he sat and the the disciples stood? Like if if we did that, that'd be weird, right? But we do the opposite. I don't really know why. Um, I don't think I could sit down. I I have to move around. I have to stand. I think I would stop communicating if I had to sit too long. Uh, Anyways, that's neither here nor there. We're in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, If you recall, last week, we spoke about Abraham and this this other encounter that he had with the Lord. Uh, Only maybe a few days, up to a few months, up to three months had gone by, and God revisits Abraham and reminds him of the promise once again. He spoke to him in the beginning of Genesis chapter 17, revisits him again uh, and encourages him with the word, uh, reminding him of the promise. And we talked about this servanthood, this character of service that we saw in Abraham. And he was urgent and he was eager to serve the Lord. And we compared that to the way Jesus was a servant and a servant of all. Now, We're going to continue our study through Genesis chapter 18. We'll finish the chapter. Uh, We're going to see that these three men, um, not only were they coming to have this encounter with Abraham, they were on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're going to look at this dialogue between Abraham and the Lord. Remember, there was three men, right? There were three men... That came down, that encountered Abraham. One was the Lord. This was a Christophany, and we talked about that a little bit. This was this is a this is a, a, a picture of the the pre-incarnate Christ. Now we're going to see two of these men continue on to Sodom at the end of this chapter and in the beginning of Genesis chapter 19, and one stays, and that one man is referred to as that one man is referred to as Yahweh. Okay, so we're going to look at this dialogue between Abraham and God. And what I want to focus on is really anytime we see dialogue between God and a person in the Bible, it's considered prayer, right? Anytime we're talking to God, when we talk to God, it's called prayer prayer, right? So when we see that in the Bible, when people are having conversations with Jesus, that's technically prayer. They're praying to God. They're talking to God. God, Jesus is God in the flesh. So this is no different. We're going to see this dialogue between Abraham and God, and essentially he's praying. So we're going to see the outcries of these people in Sodom and Gomorrah and the suffering that they're facing and the sin and the sexual immorality and all these different things that are going on there. And we're going to see how God responds to these things. So the title of this message is simply Effective Prayer. Effective Prayer. See, we're going to look at two things both uh, the type of prayer that's effective, simply in what we see in the text, but also the fact that prayer is effective and how God responds to the prayers not only of these people, but the prayers of Abraham in this dialogue that they have together. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 18. Verse 16 says, then the men rose from there. These are the angels that visited Abraham and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. Then, sorry, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham surely shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So we see these men are getting ready to head to Sodom. The Lord wants to see what's going on here with the outcries of these people, and the Lord has this question, if you will. God knows what he's going to do all along, right? But he has, shall I reveal this to Abraham? Shall I reveal what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And look what he says. Since I have this plan for Abraham, summarizing, and since I know him, I'm going to reveal this to him. See, because of Abraham's intimate relationship with the Lord, the Lord revealed this future plan. He revealed what he was going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, Abraham's a friend of God. And this brings me to my first point Intim- intimacy leads to revelation. Intimacy leads to revelation. God reveals secrets to those he knows. He reveals secrets to those he knows, and that is one of the reasons why he's going to reveal this to Abraham. And we don't just see this here. We see this throughout scripture. God often reveals things to the people that he's closest to. We see it in Matthew chapter 17. In the Mount of Transfiguration, he brought the three, Jesus brought the three closest people to him, right? He brought John, James, and Peter up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And what did he do there? He revealed his divinity. He revealed his glory. Those were the guys that throughout the gospels were the most intimate. They had the most intimate relationship with the Lord. And we see the Lord through that intimacy. He reveals this glory to them. Now, I'm not saying that, that God has favorites and God will only reveal these things to these people and not these things to these, other thing, to, the, to these other people, but I just want you to follow along with me here. Think about it personally. You reveal the deepest, darkest secrets to who? The people you're closest to right? The people that you have the most intimate relationships with. Maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your brother, maybe it's a close friend, but there's something to that intimacy that you say, I can trust this person. I can give them this information and I'm going to reveal these secrets to them because of this intimacy, See, that's what's happening here with God and Abraham. He says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And then we'll look at verse 19 again For I have known him. Because I know him, I'm going to reveal these things to him. The more intimate our relationship with him, the more he'll reveal to us. The more intimacy we have with the Lord, the more he's going to reveal it to us. What do I mean? If we're not going to God in prayer, if we're not going to God in the word, how can we expect him to reveal things to us, right? It's through those intimate encounters that we have with the Lord, going to him in prayer, going to him in our devotional lives, having that contact, going to him in worship, that's when he brings revelation into our lives. In fact, he invites us into those intimate settings. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter six, In Matthew chapter six, in the Sermon on the Mount, you guys know the verse, Matthew chapter six, verse six, he says, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. God reveals secrets in the secret place. God reveals revelation in the secret place. So often God reveals things to us in those intimate settings. And in those intimate settings, in those secret places that we have with the Lord, maybe it's your car, maybe it's your closet, wherever it may be for you personally, he tells us, hey, you should be praying for me to reveal these secret things to you. That's what Paul prays for, for the church of Ephesus. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, real quick. Ephesians chapter 1, we see Paul pray this prayer of revelation for this church. And this is a prayer I believe we should be praying every day. I love this prayer. I pray it so often. Look at this prayer. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15, he says, therefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. It says, I'm praying for you. This is the prayer. That the, God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He says, pray to God for revelation. Pray for your eyes, the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened. Pray that God reveals these secret, precious revelations to you. See, as we engage in intimacy with the Lord, he reveals things to us. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that It has come to me, and if not, I will know. See, the Lord knows what's going to happen, right? He's sovereign, right? He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, he's all-present, he's all-knowing, okay? So he knows what's happening. He doesn't have to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to find out what's happening what he's doing here is he's expressing in his heart that he wants to be intimately involved with those who are suffering. I'm going to see for myself. I'm going to go there. He's in uh, this, this angel of the Lord form. We see he's referred to as a man earlier in this chapter, and he wants to, to encounter them um, and see it for himself, though he already knows what's going to happen. But I want to uh, focus on one point here listen to why he goes. He says, back to verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave. That's why God is going. What does that mean? They're out, they're crying out to God. These people are suffering in Sodom and Gomorrah. All these horrific sins are happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. These people are suffering and they're crying out to God and God responds. God does respond to prayer. He responds to prayer. That's why he's going to Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, it's for their wickedness, but God himself says, because the outcry, because the prayer, that's why he's going to Sodom and Gomorrah. Some will say, why pray? God's gonna do what he's gonna do, right? God has a plan. He knew what was gonna happen from day one. God's sovereign, right? Yeah, he's sovereign, but why does he ask us to pray? many reasons, but the reality of it is that we see in scripture is God is moved when we pray, and we're going to see God, not going to say that he changed his mind because he knew what he was going to do all the time, but we see God uh, respond to the prayers of these people, and later we'll see him respond to the prayers of Abraham. Now, I don't know how long these people had been crying out in Sodom and Gomorrah, but I know this. God did answer their prayers in his own way, in his own perfect timing. Which brings me to my second point. God responds to prayer with perfect timing. God responds to prayer with perfect timing. It could have been a long time that these people were suffering. Could have been a short time. It's probably a long time, but God responds in his own perfect timing. And we see that in scripture. In 2 Peter chapter three, verse nine, we see even one of the reasons why God hesitates sometimes to intervene and answer specific prayers. And it says in 2 Peter verse chapter three, verse nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You hear that? The Lord's not slack concerning his promises. He's waiting. Don't count his long suffering as weakness. He's waiting. He's practicing patience for a specific purpose, and his purpose is what we prayed earlier, that he desires all men to be saved. We can look at all the things that are going on in this world, and it's sad. You look at all the stuff with ISIS. They just slayed a Catholic priest during mass. During mass. You look at the the racism that's going on and cops being targeted. You look at the news. It's it's horrible. Sometimes I wish I didn't have the little Fox News app on my phone, but I want to know what's happening. So I keep looking at it. And it's like, I don't want to look, but I have to look. And I don't want to look. There's people, they're killing their children. There was a lady a few weeks ago. She went mad and she killed her children. They believed because she wanted to get back at her husband. It's like the madness that is going on in this world. We can look at these things and say, God, why are you allowing all this stuff to happen? God, why don't you intervene if you're all powerful? If you can do something about it, why don't you do something about it? But let's think about that. God doesn't intervene on every evil act. We always want, God, take out ISIS. God, take out these, these protesters that are doing the, God, take these people out. But think about it. If God intervened on every evil act, if God intervened and prevented us or stopped us or struck us down every time we sinned, none of us would be here anymore. Right, So we always want God to intervene on the evil that we see outside of our personal lives, or maybe even in our personal lives, these horrific acts. But what about us? When we act evil, God, I want grace. God, mercy. God, forgive me. So we have to look at God as this righteous judge, which we'll talk about later. God doesn't intervene in every situation. He'll intervene in his own perfect timing. Yes, he's sovereign, but he's not a control freak. He is sovereign. He's got it all under control, but he's not a control freak. He's not like, Desiree, don't do this, and Adam, don't do this, and yada, yada, yada. He gives us free will, and he doesn't always intervene in that free will. Now, we see God intervene like we will see him here, but the Lord is is long suffering. He's not slack concerning his promises. He's long suffering because he hopes that all will come to repentance. God has his reasons for why he waits to act. Sometimes God's just giving people a little extra time to repent and be saved. Look at this story in scripture. I want you guys to flip with me to 2nd Chronicles chapter 33. We see this character of God in long suffering. Now, if anyone in the Bible deserves to be judged, it might be this guy, okay? He's right up there. It's a king named Manasseh. Now let's read about him real quick. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 1, it says, Manasseh was 12, year old, 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. That's demonic. He's literally worshipping demons. Okay. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the sun. of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He's literally sacrificing his children to demons, okay? Now look what happens. Verse nine, so Manasseh seduced Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So not not only is he doing these things, he's seducing the whole people, all of Judah to do the same things that he's doing. So they're sacrificing their children as well. He's leading them in this. And then look what happens in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. So he's trying to reach out to him and he's still not listening. "'Therefore the Lord brought upon them "'the captains of the army of the king of Assyria "'who took Manasseh with hooks, "'bound him with bronze fetters "'and carried him off to Babylon.'" Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him and he received entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And we see Manasseh, he completely repents. He breaks down all the altars and all the idols, stops worshiping gods and starts worshiping the real God. Imagine that. God watched him murder his children, watched him lead his people to murder his children. And he long suffers with Manasseh because he knows. If he gives him one more chance, he's gonna repent in his affliction, he's gonna turn from his ways and he's going to come to know me. Now you look at that story and are like, dude, that guy deserves to be judged, right? God says, no, I'm gonna long suffer with him until he repents. I read this news article in Christianity Today. And it was about this um, story of this uh, ISIS militant, okay? And he said, he said his words, I enjoyed murdering Christians. I enjoyed it. I took pleasure in it. Jesus began to, to, to intervene and visit this man in dreams. Jesus, he said, I've had these dreams about this man in a white robe. And he would come to me and he would speak to me. And I knew he was something special. Then as he murdered another group of Christians, one of them had a Bible and he grabbed the Bible and something came over him. He started reading the Bible. And then the Lord came to him in another dream. and He said, you follow me. This is my word. That ISIS militant got saved. He's a believer. He's a Christian. Crazy, right? The Lord's long suffering with them. He's long suffering with ISIS and they're literally, he's visiting them in dreams so that they Will be saved. Now we look, God, take them out, but God's like, no, I love them too. I'm long suffering with them. They got a chance. And I'm going to long suffer with them until as many as I can, I can draw them in and bring them to know me, that they will come to the knowledge of me and repent. See, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, but long suffering, hoping that all will come to repentance. Now, this might have been one of the reasons why God's waiting to answer the outcries of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's some indication there because Abraham, we'll see, has this dialogue about, hey, if there's these amount of righteous people, God could have acted right off the bat, but he waits, right? I believe God's waiting because he's trying. He wants as many people in there to come to know him and come to repent as possible. But at the same time, he has to act because he won't strive with wickedness forever. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 18, verse 21, he says, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Now I just want to remind us and pick up on something. It says the men turned away and they went toward Sodom. Abraham stayed with the Lord. In Sodom, there was three men. Now, two men go to Sodom. We see that these two angels that visit Lot and his family, one man stays with the Lord, and this man's name is referred to as the Lord. That's Yahweh. So this man is Yahweh. This is pre-incarnate Christ, okay? This is the angel of the Lord. We've talked about this a little bit, but um, had some questions about it before. So just giving you some further backing on that. There's lots of Christophanies, they're called, Uh, in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 18, verse 23. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham's struggling. Lord, what are you doing? You're going to judge all these people? Wait, I think there's some righteous people in there. Lord, you're going to judge the righteous with the wicked? That's not the Lord I know. That's not the God that has revealed himself to me several times thus far. So we see Abraham, he's appealing to God based on what he knows about God. You're a righteous judge, right? You're not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. You're not some vengeful, wrathful God that's just going to take everybody out because of some people that are doing wicked things. But what Abraham is doing is he's coming to the Lord with a recognition of the Lord's character which is so important for us when we come to the Lord in prayer. Which brings me to my third point. Consider who you're praying to. Consider who you're praying to. That's what Abraham's doing. He's like, wait, God, you're a righteous judge. What you're saying, you're going to go there and judge the wicked. But wait, there's some righteous people in there. You're going to judge the righteous with the wicked? That's not who I think you are and how you've revealed yourself to me. That doesn't line up with the character that you've proven to me time and time again. And Abraham's right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You're a righteous judge, right? Yes, he's spot on. God is a righteous judge. He has a reason for why he does what he does and he doesn't judge the wicked with the righteous. We see it, we're talking about it in VBS this week, right? Noah and his family, they were the only righteous people on earth. There was wickedness all over the earth. God looked at the earth. He's like, why did, I, why did I even create these people? They're doing all these wickedness, all this wickedness, yada, yada, yada. He judges the wicked, but he saves the few righteous that was there. He had a creative way to judge the wicked and save the righteous on Noah's ark. And we see that throughout scripture. Specifically, we see that at the end of scripture, he will judge both the righteous and the wicked, but they won't receive the same judgments. There'll be different judgments. See, God finds a way to deliver the righteous, And judge the wicked. We see it in Revelation chapter 4, the rapture of the church. Then in Revelation chapter 6 to 19, we see the tribulation, the seven year tribulation. God delivers the righteous and he judges the wicked. And then at the end of Revelation uh, chapter 19, verse 2, the church says, True and righteous are your judgments. Your judgments, they're true and they're righteous. They get it at the end, at the very end of time, towards the end of time, still got the millennial reign, new heaven, new earth. But they say, they look back and they go, no, true and righteous are your judgments. You are a righteous judge. God saves the righteous from judgment and for judgment. You'll understand, let me get to it. He saves the righteous from judgment and for judgment because the church is gonna be judged as well. It's a different kind of judgment. But first, we know that this righteousness that that God speaks of, it's not the righteousness that's based on works. It's not something that we earn. It's not because we act a certain way or we do a certain thing. It's righteousness that comes through faith, right? It comes through relationship with him. We're covered by the righteousness of Christ. That's what he's referring to, okay? The righteousness that comes Through faith in Jesus Christ. It's Romans chapter 3, verse 22, if you want to write it down. So we know that in the end we'll be saved from the tribulation. God will deliver us, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to face our own judgment, and we will. The Bible speaks clearly and specifically about it. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. says, verse 10, for we must all, okay, speaking to the church in Corinth, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we see that the church, we're all gonna be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. This is referred to as the bema seat. If you wanna write that down, that's the Greek word, the B-E-M-A, the bema judgment seat is, that's where, that's the, uh, like the, we get it from like the Olympics, like the Olympic judgment is an evaluation. It's an evaluation, it's a reward system, right? This is why it's called the bema seat of Christ. This isn't a judgment of condemnation. This is a judgment and evaluation of what you did on earth and the rewards that you're going to receive. We see we're going to be rewarded with what we do with the grace that's been bestowed on us. Let me explain it like this to keep it really simple. Okay, when you get to heaven, it might look something like this. Don't don't quote me on this. It'll probably look something like this. God's going to say, Mary... Okay, here's a list of all the wrong that you've done in your life. Here's all the sin that you've done in your life from age one to age however, whatever. Okay, here's all your sin. Wash with the blood of the lamb. Don't worry about that. What'd you do with the grace? What'd you do with the, with the forgiveness? because this is what you're going to be rewarded for. What'd you do with the grace that was, this is all going to be washed away. You're not going to be judged. The judgment, Jesus bore the judgment for our sins, but what'd you do with it? What'd you do with the grace that was bestowed on you? And based on that, we're rewarded for what we do with our faith. So that's the judgment of the church. This isn't a scary thing. This is a reward thing. Jesus already paid the price for our sins, so the righteous will be judged. It's an interest, Shall you judge the righteous with the wicked? God has a very interesting way to do both. We see at the end of time that the unrighteous will be judged as well. In Revelation chapter 20, it's called the great white throne judgment. they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Eternal torment. It's a real thing. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven but we see he has a specific judgment for the wicked as well, for the unrighteous. Abraham, he's coming to the Lord. God, aren't you a righteous judge? That's basically what he God, you're a righteous judge. What I know about you, what I know about your character, you're, you're, you're righteous. You're a righteous judge. And I think we tend to forget this as a church. And I think that's what gets a lot of confusion with uh, isn't the Old Testament God different than the New Testament? Like, I like the New Testament, but the Old Testament God, like, he's different, you know? I'll, and you'll even hear people, I believe in the New Testament. The Old Testament, the God, nah, I don't think he had it, whatever. It's the same God. It's the, it's the same exact God. And we could look at the New Testament like, Jesus, so often he's, he's kind and comforting, but a lot of times he's not. He's turning over tables, you know? He, he's, he's cleansing the temple. He's speaking hard truth to the Pharisees. So often when we're uneducated in the word, we can look at the one verse that everybody loves to use in 1 John chapter four, God is love. God is love, God is love, that's true. God is love. Love is the essence of who God is, but he's more than love. He's not just love, he's just, right? And he's a righteous judge, right? His love doesn't mean that he doesn't judge wickedness for wickedness, that he doesn't confront sin, we go, God is love, so why, is all these, why are all these bad things happening? God's just, he's a righteous judge. He won't judge the righteous with the wicked, but he is a righteous judge. He's not just love, it's not just grace, it's not just mercy. The whole Bible reveals God's character, not just one verse. Everybody just likes to use the one verse, God is love. Yeah, God has a lot of things. He has a lot, he, character, his whole character is revealed through the Bible and we're seeing a piece of it here. But I think it's so important to understand that as we pray, that's what Abraham's doing. He's a righteous judge. Okay, based on this, I'm directing my prayer based on who I know God to be. And we need to do the same with all the character qualities that God reveals throughout the Bible, we don't just pray to God and simply considering what he can do, but who he is. Just because he can do anything doesn't mean he will do anything. What do I mean? It's like so often we can think of God as the cosmic genie. God, give me this, bless me with this. Oh, but you said you'll give me the desires of my heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and then I'll give you the desires of your heart. Why? When you delight yourself in the Lord, he changes the desires of your heart. And then they start to line up. It's not just this cosmic genie that's giving me everything that I want. He's a heavenly father. So what does that mean? He's not gonna give you everything you want, but he'll give you everything you need and he'll make sure you're taken care of. But we have to consider these things when we're praying to God, who he is, what his character is. And that's what Abraham is doing here. Yes, he's a judge, but he's a righteous judge. God, you care about these people. Don't you care about the ones that are righteous, the ones that have relationship with you? And God absolutely does. Let's look at what happens. Basically what we're gonna see here in verses 26 to 33, um, and I'll read it, but before I I do, we have this dialogue. They go back and forth. Um, Abraham says, hey, will you save will you say 50? If there's 50 righteous people, will you not destroy Sodom? It's like, yeah, what about 45? And he keeps going on, 30, 20, 10. It's the final number he gets to. If there's this many people, will you turn back from your plan and not judge these people? Now it's interesting because God's going to answer multiple prayers at a time. There's the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah and there's the prayers of Abraham and somehow, some way, and we'll see how he does it. He like intertwines, answering these prayers, and he answers both the prayers. I'm going to answer the outcries of the people, and I'm going to answer Abraham's prayers. Because remember what Abraham's praying. Let's look at it. Verse 26. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous, would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there would be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 would be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. I suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Now, I want to look at one thing, and I'll I'll connect these, but look at how, how the Lord is speaking to Abraham. He says it different ways, but look specifically at verse 32. This last time he appeals to the Lord, he says, then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak, but once more. We see the boldness of Abraham in coming to the Lord, but we also see The reverence of Abraham. Let not the Lord be angry, but let me speak. This brings me to the fourth and final point. Appeal to God with boldness and reverence. Appeal to God with boldness and reverence. Yes, he's our heavenly father. Yes, we should come boldly before the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter four. But also recognize who sits on that throne and how we should revere him. As we see Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, he said, he saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And what did he do? We've talked about it before. I'm undone, I'm unclean. He, was, he had the fear of the Lord instilled in him in a moment. He had reverence for the Lord. So yes, come boldly before the, the Lord. Appeal to the Lord because you have a right. You're his child. He wants to hear from you, but recognize who he is, revere him, respect him. Come boldly to the throne, but recognize who's sitting on the throne. It's not us, it's him. Yes, one day we'll have thrones, revelation, but not his throne. He rules and reigns on his throne. And we see Abraham come to the Lord with this boldness and reverence. And finally, after he has this dialogue with God, he gets it down to the number 10. I don't know if Abraham cared about all the righteous people in Sodom. I don't know. He might've just had a heart for people in general, but we know his nephew, Lot's there. He has family in Sodom. So I believe eh, maybe he did. Maybe he had a heart for, for any righteous people that might be there, but he definitely has a heart for Lot and Lot's wife and Lot's, daughters and their husbands-to-be, which we'll find out later. And I don't know why Abraham just didn't say, there's four of them. Well, there's six of them, including the husbands. Will you just save the six? Will you just save my family? I don't know why Abraham didn't just go out and say it. Perhaps Abraham felt like he was pushing his luck. All right, I brought him down to 50 to 45. Perhaps he, perhaps he was uncertain if he should, Keep pushing, God. Come on, just a little more, a little more, a little more. So he gets down to ten. Suppose ten should be found there. Maybe Abraham thought, "Dude, Lot. He has a relationship with God. We see that in Second Peter, um, that Lot's declared just. Now, Lot's in compromise, and we'll talk about that next week in Genesis chapter nineteen. But he's declared just in the Bible. Which reading the text is like you." He gave up his daughters. He doesn't look like he's just, but he's declared just because of his relationship with the Lord. So we know that. But Abraham, he just petitions for 10. So he likely thought Lot, hey, maybe he brought a few people to believe in the same God that I believe in. Come on, all the time Lot's been there, he's had to share his faith with at least four people. 10 people, I know he's got the daughters and the the future husbands, they're probably good. If he has 10, I'm sure he's done at least a little bit of work in the time that he's been there. I'm sure God's gonna save Sodom and Gomorrah because of the 10 people, including Lot, and the people that he brought to the knowledge of the Lord. That might be what Abraham's thinking. But we see here this character of Abraham in this effective prayer style or disciplines if you will just want to pick up on a couple things abraham prayed specifically and god responded specifically abraham didn't just say one time save sodom and gomorrah he prayed specifically with specific numbers and he had this specific detailed dialogue with god so important for us to pray specifically so often we can say god forgive me of our sins what sins you're confessing your sin. What sin are you confessing? I know what it is. Do you know what it is? Or are you just saying confessing your sins? Because you're not going to repent if you don't know what you're doing wrong. Pray specifically. Confess specifically. Ask specifically. God, is this, this the direction that I'm supposed to go to through? This, this specific door, am I supposed to walk through this specific door? I found so often in my life, when I pray specific prayers, God so often answers specifically, and he's praying specifically. He's also praying persistently. He keeps asking. God answers his prayer the first time, but he keeps asking. He keeps asking God time and time again. Persistent prayer. Pray without ceasing. We should constantly be coming to God in prayer. Now, there's a reality that there's some prayers that God just won't answer. I would say until he tells you no about that specific prayer. And it's a a prayer according to his name, according to his character, if this seems like a prayer that he would want you to pray and you keep praying that and he doesn't tell you no, keep praying it. Keep praying it, persist in prayer. In Luke chapter 11, when Jesus teaches the disciples about prayer, look what he says here. Real quick, we're almost done. He's teaching the disciples about prayer. In verse one of chapter 11, it says, Lord, teach us to pray. Of all things, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And then we see the Lord's Prayer. And then look at this story that he connects to prayer back in in verse 5. It says, And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. What's the picture there? The first answer is no. But he keeps asking and asking and asking and asking. And the guy eventually just gets like, man, I'm just annoyed Are you asking me, so I'm gonna answer the prayer. Jesus is not saying that I get annoyed when you ask me about the same thing. He's just giving us a story of what it means to pray persistently. He wants us to keep coming to him. Don't give up if I don't answer the prayer the first time. And we see this persistence with Abraham, though he's shifting the way that he wants the prayer to be answered. He continues to pray. So we'll see in the next chapter, God doesn't save Sodom, but he does save Lot and his family. He finds a way to not judge the righteous with the wicked. See, if there was 10 righteous people, he was saying he wasn't gonna destroy Sodom at all. There's not. But he still finds a way to deliver the righteous. Who knows what would have happened if Abraham didn't have this dialogue with God, if he didn't petition God, hey, There's these righteous people there. Will you, if there's 10 righteous, God understands Abraham's heart specifically for his family, maybe for any other righteous people that were there. And God says, okay, no, 50, 45, 30, 20, 10. Okay, Abraham's praying for these people. I'm gonna do something about it. And we see God creatively does do something about it. He intervenes and he delivers Abraham's family. He finds a way to save them and bring them out before the destruction. I think the Lord wants us to know through this story that prayer does move him. God does move to save your family members when we pray. I'm not saying that every single friend and family member that you pray for is going to be saved, but I am saying that God deeply is concerned and loves that friend or family member that you're praying for, and he asks you persistently pray for that person. You never know how I'm going to intervene in that person's life. I'm asking you to pray for them. It's what we read right off the bat in the responsive reading. Pray because God desires all men to be saved. I want you to pray for all men because God desires all men to be saved. There's a direct correlation between our prayer lives and God saving people. We see Abraham praying for his family. God intervenes, and he literally saves, saves them from the upcoming destruction. When you look at the, 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 the world today, it's getting more and more like Sodom and Gomorrah, especially in America. It's crazy. The things that are happening in the school systems, we could talk about it for a while, but there's, there's so many things that are acceptable now, that are unacceptable to God, absolutely unacceptable. And it's looking more and more like Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus said in Matthew 25, it's going to get worse before it gets better, 24 and 25. So he says, I want you to, to see the signs of the times. When it starts getting bad, you'll hear wars and rumors of wars. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. People are going to keep walking away from God. Then you know I'm coming back. And I don't know, we don't know when God's coming back. But when you look at the signs of the times, Seems like it's gonna be soon, I don't know. It very well may be soon. And we see the Lord long-suffering with this world because he desires all men to come to the knowledge of who he is. Now, as I was studying this, I was getting convicted. Um, Last night, I was thinking, hold this guy my grandpa, he's not saved. And he just had like heart failure like three weeks ago. And I've, I used to pray for him all the time. And I'd had these conversations with him. And I've gotten like, I knew the Lord was doing stuff. And he came like so close so many times. And I blew it a couple times. That's a couple things I shouldn't have. then other times they were good conversations. And I, I stopped praying for him. I stopped, I stopped praying that God would intervene like, what? And I was thinking about this last night. And I'm thinking, every single family member that I have that knows the Lord, I was praying for them pretty much daily. And every single one, my brother, my father, my mother, they all know the Lord, but I was praying for them daily. I didn't give up. I persisted in prayer until they were saved. I haven't been doing that with my grandpa. And I'm thinking, man, I'm thinking about him. He almost died a few weeks ago. He had to have like, emergency heart surgery, and he's so fun, and he taught me how to play baseball, and I was just thinking last night, like laying in bed, like all the good times I had with him, how much fun I had with him, and he's gonna be in hell, and I wanna spend eternity with him, and what if God's just waiting for me to persistently pray for him, you're giving up. Personal conviction. I made a point. I'm going to start praying for him again every single day until he's saved. And I'm going to reach out. I'm going to have conversations. But more than conversations, I'm going to pray for him. And I ask each of you, if you have a friend, if you have a family member that you kind of gave up on that you don't pray for anymore, pray for him. We see Abraham praying for his family, those that are righteous. He will deliver the righteous, and you never know. Maybe it's that one last prayer that just turns things around, and God's long-suffering with them, waiting for them, no matter how wicked they are, waiting for them to come to the knowledge of who he is. Persistent prayer might be the very thing that brings them to that place and they know the Lord. So I want to encourage you at least just this week one person say I'm going to pray for them every single day that God intervenes and meets them where they're at and see what happens. Let's see what happens. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we know you care so deeply about all those that are lost and God, we have friends and family members that, that don't know you. There's, i got to believe that everyone in this room knows somebody that doesn't know you, God, that's close to them, that they dearly love. Lord, and I just pray that you would give us hearts like you had for the lost sheep, those that have gone astray, those that have never known the way. Lord, that you would give us hearts to pray for those people. God, that we would pray for all men. God, that we would pray for ISIS, that we would pray for... Um, all these different movements that are happening, Lord, governors and officials, and even the corrupt ones, God, they're not too far from your saving hand, Lord. And I pray that, that you would change our hearts for those people and we would be people of prayer because, God, you can visit people in dreams and bring them to salvation. Lord, and if you would use our prayers, that, that's, that's amazing, God. So I pray you would give us a heart to pray for the lost. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.